I really encourage people to recognize, like, if you feel like you wasted your time, I don't think anything is a waste of time, really, because you're developing skills that you may use in really unexpected and unique ways in the future. Richard Branson, Michael Phelps, Justin Timberlake, James Carville. Wait a minute. Where are the women? Greta Gerwig, Lisa Ling, Audra McDonald, Simone Biles. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. They all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that now, do you? You know what else you don't hear about? Are the 43% of people with ADHD who are in excellent mental health. Why aren't we talking about them and what they're doing right? I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and that's exactly what we do here. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, and now the author of my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm also a certified ADHD coach and the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a patented system that helps ADHD women just like you get unstuck and fall in love with their brilliant brains. Here, we embrace our too-muchness and we focus on our strengths. My guests and I credit our ADHD for some of our greatest gifts. And to those who still think they're too much, too impulsive, too scattered, too disorganized, I say no one ever made a difference by being too little. Okay, we're live. Teddy bear, get down. I have this golden doodle who wants more treats. (laughs) Anyway, hello, hello, hello. I am your host, Tracy Atsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for ADHD for Smartass Women. There is still so much going on in bookland, so I hope you're okay with me continuing to share these happenings. I am so proud that we wrote a book for women with ADHD that pushes against the mainstream narrative because that's what I do, right? That's what we do. We challenge the status quo. And so I'm tickled pink that we're getting recognition for it. From Making CBS Mornings with Sarah Gelman and her top five books to boost productivity and thrive in the new year, to Book Riot's top self-help books for 2024, and we were just included in their 25 of the best self-improvement books to read in 2024, to receiving Amazon's editor's pick for best nonfiction, our publisher's weekly review, and we were just reviewed in the New York Journal of Books which is the leading online-only book review publication. And I honestly don't know what they could have written that was better than what they wrote. Well, they could have said I walked on water, but then no one would have continued reading. So I'm glad they didn't say that. Regardless, all of this is because of you, our listeners, our amazing book team, and anyone who's taken the time to purchase ADHD for Smartass Women and review it. But Enough about our book right now, because I want to introduce you to another brand new book about ADHD that literally came out a week after my book that's just knocked it out of the park, and it's written by the wonderful Jessica McCabe. Look, I've told several people that I interviewed Jessica about her new ADHD book, and they've all said the same thing. Why would you interview someone who has a book that's coming out right after yours on the same subject? Because this isn't pie. There's plenty to go around for everyone. 
And if the goal truly is to change the lives of women with ADHD, then it would seem that the more of us that are talking about ADHD, well, the more likely that we'll actually change lives, right? It's the ripple effect. And we all come at the same subject in a different way. My focus is looking at successful women with ADHD to see what are they doing right? Someone else's focus may be, I don't know, looking at kids. In a minute, we're going to find out what Jessica's focus is. Regardless, she deserves every success and has been focused on ADHD almost twice as long as I have. I also included her in my book. And by the way, she's also the perfect example of how those of us with ADHD, we often look 10 years younger. I think it's the curiosity, the childlike wonder that Jessica has in spades. And so, of course, for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Jessica McCabe. Jessica McCabe is the founder and host of the award-winning channel, How to ADHD. After being diagnosed with ADHD at age 12, Jessica struggled with a brain she didn't understand, like losing important items and having trouble with relationships. Determined to understand her challenges, Jessica reached out to experts, read articles, and decided to share her findings with others. In 2015, Jessica launched her YouTube channel and has since built a community of millions who follow along as she uses up-to-date research, consultations with mental health professionals, and her own personal experience to create fun, educational content to help people better understand their unique brains and live more fulfilled lives. In 2017, Jessica gave a TED Talk on her experience understanding her brain, which has garnered almost 20 million views to date and has inspired ADHD and neurodiversity advocacy around the world. Jessica also has a brand new book out called of course, How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it, with Rodale Books that I'm sure she will tell us all about. Welcome, Jessica. How are you? And did I get all that right? Thank you so much. Wow, you made me sound really impressive. I did all of those things. I don't remember that I did all of those I know. things, but yeah. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. Thank you. Yeah. You need to celebrate more, Jess, because you've done so much. And I just want, and I know, I mean, you know, people are probably thinking, well, wait a minute, she's got a book coming out and she's got a book coming out, but you know what? The pie's always big enough. And I just want to tell you, I hope you're really proud of what you, what you created because it really is a doozy. I mean, there is so much that you've been through and there is so much that you've learned and it's beautifully written and you pretty much bear it all. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Yeah, I am very proud and I'm very surprised actually that I finished it. I've never finished a long-term project like that before. And so when I set out, I was like, it would be so great to have a book that that combines everything that I've learned that has helped me and gives people the experience that they would have if they had watched my TEDx talk, binge watched my channel, hung out in the comment section and read the experiences of other people and then sat down and had coffee with me. And my editor was like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And I was like, cool. Can you can you give me some comps, like some comparable, like so that I know we're on the same page with what we're writing. And she says, sounds like you know what you're doing. And I was like, shoot, because I really wanted her to show me what this might look like because I was like, this sounds like a great idea. I have no idea how to how to actually pull it off. And so with a lot of help, I actually did pull it off. And I'm really proud of what I've written and um, grateful that you're <laughs> that you're helping me get the word out about it. Yeah. I hope you're celebrating it all. 
one of the things that I noticed is your voice is so clear. It sounds like your videos. Yeah, I, uh, that's probably because, you know, this is part of the strengths that can come out of the weaknesses. I second guess myself a lot. And so there was a lot of me reading what I wrote to other people and like, what is this, you know, does this sound okay? Does this sound okay? Mm -hmm. And I got, I got used to reading it out loud to so many people that it really did come out in my voice. And if it didn't sound like it was in my voice and I, then I tweaked it. I got a lot of feedback on this, which again, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand that sometimes our strengths aren't pure strengths. Sometimes yeah. those strengths come out of an area of insecurity or out of an area of weakness. Absolutely. And the things that we do to cope with that end up making us really good at what we do. So I have a question and I always go first to, you know, let's talk about your ADHD diagnoses, but I really want to ask you this because after I read your book, I wondered about it. Typically, what we find is you're either really good, you know, talking to people on camera, the, the audio stuff, right? And I don't even know if that's called the audio stuff, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Versus there's other people who are really good at the writing part. And one of the things or the thing that you do that I've always been in awe of is <laughs> creating those videos. Not so much getting up there and speaking, because I do, I can do a lot of that, but it's the technical stuff behind it. And how you organize, okay, we're going to talk about this. And then you include all the little prompts as you're going through it. Like, how do you do that? How did you know? How to do it's just, is that just a natural I, talent? No, I had to. Again, I had to. So when I first started recording videos for the channel, I sat down and I spoke extemporaneously to camera. And then I went into the editing room and I tried to edit it and it was a, it was a disaster. I was all over so the place, hard. everywhere. And so I was like, well, that's not going to work. So then I started going, okay, maybe if somebody asks me a question, I can stay a little bit more on topic. So I started, you know, having prompts of like, you know, this question, what is this thing? Why does it matter? You know, ask, asking myself these questions. And then I would still try and speak extemporaneously and that was better, but it was still not great. And so what I realized is I need to write scripts. I need to actually script it out. And so now I do vlogs and I can speak extemporaneously a little bit better. But at the time, everything that I put out on my channel was scripted because it was the only way I could stay on topic. It was the only way I could boil this information down in a way that that wasn't meandering and all over the place. And I really liked doing it. And what I did was gave myself a framework because I would, I would brain dump, this is my process. I would brain dump all of the ideas, right? Like we're great divergent thinkers. We have tons of ideas. I would brain dump anything I might want to include in an episode on a piece of paper or on a Google doc, whatever. And then from there, I would write a terrible first draft. And then I would write a better second draft. And then I would write another draft and then I would polish it. And then I would record. And, um, I was going somewhere with that. Uh, hang on. <laughs> I got really excited. Do you ever get really excited about what you're about to say and then completely forget what do, it was? Do I ever? <laughs> like every yeah. single hour? So you, <laughs> we were talking about how you were able to build these videos. Yes. So then what helped me um, when I went to go write that first draft was I would outline after I had all the ideas down. I could never write from an outline because I could never stick to it, right? But if I got all of my ideas out first and then I outlined it, then it was better. And so I had the same outline for every video that I started with, which is mm. what's the problem? Yeah. You know, what's going on with it, right? Introduce the problem, explain the problem, introduce a solution or strategy, and then explain the strategy. And every single video fit in, you know, I could fit my, uh, my chaos into these. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so important when you have an ADHD, when you have ADHD, 
whether you're trying to write, whether you're trying to (laughs) go about your day, whatever it is you're trying to do to have a basic, simple framework that is flexible enough that, you know, that you're all of the, your you can fit into it, but, but structured enough that it keeps you from going completely off the rails. Absolutely. Absolutely. And (laughs) I can relate to all of it. So let's talk about your ADHD diagnoses. What were the circumstances? As I mentioned in your bio, you were pretty young for, certainly for a girl at that time, right? You were 12 years old. Can you tell us about it? I was, yeah. I was very fortunate to be diagnosed fairly early for, you know, for that period of time. And Mm -hmm. as, as a female, especially as a gifted female, right? I'm twice exceptional. The reason why I got diagnosed was because a boy in my family got diagnosed. He fit that stereotypical bouncing off the walls, getting into trouble, you know, the ADHD stereotype, the Bart Simpson type. And he went to get diagnosed. My aunt took him to get diagnosed. And her doctor was very ahead of the ahead of the times too and looked at, you know, looked at the kid, diagnosed him, you know, really real quick, right? But then he looked at my aunt and he said, "Okay, let's talk about you." And she was like, "What about me?" And he ran her through the evaluation too, and it turned out she was diagnosed with ADD at the time. And I love this aunt. This is I always like had a huge, you know, bond to her. She was my favorite aunt. She loved books. I loved books. She was smart. I was smart. She was scattered. I was scattered. I really had a kinship with her. And at the time, my mom looked at me and was like, you're a lot like your aunt. Maybe we should get you checked out. (laughs) And so she took me to my pediatrician. And, you know, he asked her a few basic screening questions. And one of them was, how did she do in school? Because that's what we look at, right? How did she do in school? And my mom, you know, I was 12 at the time. So we really had elementary school to go off of. And then seventh grade, I had completely fallen apart. But he said, how did she do in elementary school? And my mom said, great. She got straight A's. She's a gifted student. And he said, she can't have ADHD. She's too smart. Of course. And my mom, (laughs) who not only had this information that, you know, ADHD is genetic and my aunt had it. I was a lot like my aunt. My mom recognized these things, but my mom was also a specialist, but my mom was also a special education teacher. Uh, And so she, she knew a bit more than most too. And she knew how to advocate for her kids. And so she said, thank you for your opinion. I'd like to see a specialist. And so I went to a specialist and they did a bunch of tests to rule out other things. I remember having like electrodes on my brain. They were checking for brain damage. They were checking for all these different things. And eventually, yeah, sure enough, I was diagnosed with ADD. And so how did you feel when you were diagnosed? Was it something that you were ashamed of or was it, ugh, I, I understand now? Or there just wasn't enough information. And you talk about that in your book, huh? There wasn't enough information. All I knew was... All I knew was my aunt had been diagnosed with this thing. Now I was diagnosed with this thing. So I was like, yes, I got to join this cool club. I had so much trouble socially and fitting in. And I had just gotten transferred to a new school. And I didn't have a tether. I didn't have a sense of belonging. I didn't have a, a sense of who I was even at that point. And so this gave me that tether. This gave me that sense of belonging. Like, oh, my cool aunt has this thing. I have this thing. I'm in this cool club. Right. And you know, as far as I knew, it was just a, a matter of you get distracted, right? And then there's these medi- there's this medication that helps you focus. Well, cool. <laughs> I started taking that medication, and it was it was incredible. It was like night and day. Um, like putting on glasses for the first time and realizing, wow, I could focus. And going, is this what it's like for everybody else? And suddenly, my GPA, which I'd been struggling with in uh, middle school, because 
you know, more demands on my executive function, right? Mm-hmm. I'm expected to remember my locker combination. I'm expected to remember to bring my own books to class. And, you know, there was a lot more demand on my executive function. And I also had a lot less support than I used to as well, because I was at a different school. The teachers didn't know me. There, there were bigger class sizes now. And my mom was incapacitated at the time. She had gotten in a really bad accident with a drunk driver and wasn't able to oh. do all of the things that she was used to doing to support me. And so I was really a mess. But I started taking that medication and my GPA went up a full point without me doing anything differently. It was like the effort I was already putting in suddenly worked. So to me, there were no downsides, right? It was just like, oh, okay, like I have this cool thing that makes me special, like my aunt. And then I take this medication that helps with the one, the one struggle that that I face and and problem solve. Yeah. Right. Like I thought that was the end of the story. Yeah. It yeah. was not. <laughs> Spoilers, it was not. Did you know any other girls that had ADHD? I didn't know anybody else who had ADHD. Maybe they did, but it wasn't something that was talked about at the time. Mm -hmm. I thought it was this really, you know, unique thing to me that, you know, yeah, okay, it like ran in my family, I guess, but I didn't know anybody else who had it. I didn't know anybody who talked about it. In retrospect, I probably gravitated toward other people who were neurodivergent, but I didn't know that at the time. But I, I wasn't ashamed of it. I, I would tell anybody like, oh, yeah, I have ADD. I was diagnosed with this thing called ADD. Yeah, these are my meds. Like, was not a big deal to me. It was more like a personality trait or like a fun quirk, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. to me at the time. So you have to tell the story about the ducks in the high school? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Um, <laughs> I could totally see so, it. Like when I'm reading it, I could see it. Yeah. Um, there were times when I, well, okay. There were a lot of times when I didn't do my homework, but then there were times where I was excited about an assignment. I had an assignment in English class and I think it was ninth grade English class. And I don't remember what the assignment was, but, it, but this was English class. And I remember thinking to do this essay that I've, I've been assigned, I need to raise some ducks. Like I need to go to a duck farm and buy some eggs, get an incubator, incubate these eggs, help these ducks hatch, teach them how to swim in my bathtub. Like I need to raise ducks so that I can write this paper. And you didn't live in the country. No, no, I did not (laughs) live in the country. I was in the suburbs of LA. Um, It made no sense. But my mom was always really supportive of me trying whatever venture I seemed interested in at the time. God bless her. Um, And so she was like, okay, we'll raise some ducks. So, so I did. So we went to a duck farm, got some eggs. I raised, I raised some ducks. And, um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember what everybody else was doing, um, that day at school, but I'm pretty sure I was the only one who was walking around campus with three ducklings in tow. So I turned in my paper and I had my little ducks following me around the campus all day. It was great. Wait, did you have three of them? I had three. Yeah. Well, I think there were four, but three of them hatched and (laughs) I raised these little ducklings. And so I had a little trail of ducklings following me all around the school. It was was one of the best days of my life. It was great. Well, I live in the country. We have lots of ducks. Have I ever raised a duck? I don't think so, but I've raised a lot of chickens. And we had um, chickens too. (laughs) Just the idea of them walking, like even getting to school, like people don't understand they're pooping all over the place, right? And then they they, they run. (laughs) No, but I was I was their mom. I was their mama because I had I had raised them from the time that they hatched and brought them out of school. So they thought I was their mom. So yeah, they followed me all around the school. And then, yeah, I brought them home and then they did, they pooped a lot. They pooped a lot. And at some point my parents were like, okay, we do not live in the country, but we know people who do. 
um, who have a <laughs> pond that these ducks can, right? And so I ended up, you know, they, they moved to a farm upstate. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we had somebody who did have a farm who took the ducks in, but it was, it was such a fun project. And I'm, I'm so grateful that my mom always encouraged me to follow my passions, even when they objectively made no sense to anybody else. No, I mean, that's what I truly got from your book is how wonderful your mom was, but also you were beating yourself up a lot, but you were a really wonderful daughter. God, I didn't feel like it. And isn't that yeah. the truth? Like, it's so easy to focus on the places where we're falling short, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know, a good daughter doesn't, you know, <laughs> make it so her mom has to wake her up five times in the morning because I was dead to the world. Or and a good daughter keeps her room clean or a good daughter does her homework without having to be reminded 17 times, right? I was aware of all the ways in which I was making my mom's life harder. And it was extra hard because I knew that she'd been in this accident. I mean, she was born with a physical disability. She had one leg shorter than the other. And they tried to do a lot of things to to fix it, but they didn't really know what they were doing at the time. So they kind of made things worse. And then on top of that, she was in this horrible accident and her back was broken in a way that would never heal. And so I had this mom, I was in this unique position to have this mom with a physical disability who was in chronic pain. And I was just scattered, right? Like, so what was wrong with me that I couldn't, you know, I, I not only couldn't make her life easier in the ways I would have liked to, but I couldn't even take care of myself. She ended up having to, to do a lot more for me than I thought she should. And there were times, even as an adult, where she would come over and help me clean out my car, help me clean my house. And I would watch her walking around on crutches <laughs> doing these things for me. And I would feel so yeah. deeply ashamed that, you know, I knew what it would look like from the outside, right? Like I was this young, perfectly able-bodied person. And here is my mom in chronic pain on crutches doing things that I should have been able to do myself. And it was so deeply embarrassing um, for me that it was it was hard to feel like I was a good daughter, right? Like at the very least I could, you know, I could be self-sufficient and not make her life harder. But here I was, you know, not only not being able to do enough for her, but I wasn't even able to take care of myself. And so you know what, though, Jess, you were doing the important things for your mom. I mean, clearly she knew you cared about her, you adored her, and you were trying. And I hope that by the time you finished the book and you read it through again, you realized that I was a really good daughter and I was doing my best. You know, I didn't. (laughs) But do you still not feel that way? You're, you're helping me shift that perspective a little bit because I, I did, um, you know, after my dad died, I tried to step in and, and, you know, help her in the ways that he used to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to be there for her and I took her on little trips and bought her jewelry for her birthday. And there was a lot that I did do, but like a lot of women with ADHD, I was frustrated with myself for not being able to do it consistently. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. I went to massage therapy school and learned how to give massages as, you know, partly so that I could help her oh. with her chronic pain. But then I felt guilty because like some days I just didn't want to give her a massage. Right. Like I'm like, oh, I could give her a massage or I could go do this thing that I wanted to do. And I would feel selfish not doing more. And I think that's just it's such a common thing that we deal with as women with ADHD is feeling like like we're capable of doing this. So why aren't we doing it more? Um, why aren't we doing consistency, you know, consistently? Um, and it took me a long time to realize, and it's one of the most powerful things that I realized is understanding that that inconsistency, that doesn't mean that we don't have ADHD. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It is the struggle, right? 
And if you think of your ADHD as a disability, it is the disability. It's not that like, oh, I don't have a disability because like I'm perfectly capable of doing this sometimes. No, that's, that is the struggle, right? That is, that is the ADHD. It's that inconsistency. Part of it though too, Jess, is the empathy, you know, we tend to have so much more empathy. Yeah. And so you're constantly thinking about all these things you could have done instead of focusing on all the things you did do. And clearly your mom loved you. She wanted to be around you. I mean, you went to massage school because you were worried about your mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like the empathy is such an interesting thing with ADHD because sometimes we can struggle with empathy in certain ways, but then some people are so empathic that it actually can get in the way. So there yeah. are some times where, you know, where I've been in relationships where I've enabled somebody or I've, you know, I've had, I've had a hard time being present for them because my own emotions coming up about what they're going through are so strong that I can't really be present enough to hear their experience or what they need. Yeah. So the empathy, it's, yeah, it's, it can be really strong, but it can be dysregulated just like our, our emotions in general, just like our attention can be or whatever. So Empathy, yeah, but I think we do. We feel so deeply and we care so much. Um, and if there's anything, if there's anybody listening who is wondering, you know, if, if their partner really cares about them, yeah, we do. We care so much. It just doesn't always translate into actions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you about the book, I promise, although we've been talking about it as we, as we go through all this. But as I was reading, I was really curious about, so you were an actress, and I remember when I was a teenager, my father used to tell me that I was, he didn't use the term melodramatic, but it was like melodramatic. <laughs> sure. And he was probably right because I had boyfriends tell me that too. And I didn't know what it was and I had to look it up, you know? And I remember him one time telling me, you know what? And, and he was serious. He said, you should be a soap opera star. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I would love to be a soap opera star, but I could never remember the lines. There would just be no way. You were an actress. How did you do this? Or do you not struggle with working memory the way I do? Oh, no. Working memory is, as uh, my report delightfully understates, a, a, a relative area of weakness for me. Um, <laughs> my, my verbal comprehension is incredible, um, but, but my working memory is awful. And so memorizing lines was the bane of my existence. I would try so hard and so long to memorize lines and I would still show up and not have any idea what, what I was going to be saying. And a lot of times, you know, that combined with the self-esteem issues that can come along with ADHD, I would go into the room and give a performance that basically said, I'm sorry for wasting your time. Mm. But I did get really good at cold reading. So glancing down at the script and, and looking up and delivering yeah. lines, I got really good at that because I kind of had to. And so when I started you know, with my, with my channel and doing scripts instead of like, I, I gave up on the idea of memorizing real quick, like real quick, because it was yeah. such a tight turnaround. I, you know, I, as soon as it was written, I needed to shoot the next day. There was no way I was going to memorize this. Just Perfect. no way. So I, I printed everything out in 30 point font and I put <laughs> these pages on a whiteboard that I got at Staples and I would just glance down at the lines and look up at camera and say them. And I'd glance down at the lines and look up at camera and say them. And we would just edit that out. So the reason my videos punch around so much oh. is to hide that, is to hide me looking down at the lines and looking up at camera. And I think that's one of the great things about people understanding that ADHD brains work differently now is understanding that the way that we are going to accomplish the same results might look a little different because we have to navigate around these challenges right? But we can lean into these strengths. 
many of which are because of the ADHD, but many of which we've developed as a result of having ADHD. I got so good at cold reading because I couldn't memorize lines, but now I'm really good at it, right? And so when left to our own devices, I feel like we're really good at finding the ways to get the thing done. It's when we have to do them in the way that other people expect us to, that it becomes an issue. I was recording a video. This was before ADHD. And I remember I had this young Stanford videographer. He had just graduated from Stanford and he was clearly brilliant, right? And he refused to let me use a teleprompter. And I told him, I am really good on a teleprompter. You won't even know I'm on a teleprompter. He's like, no, it won't come across naturally or as natural. So what he made me do, and I don't know, I mean, he was like probably 23 years old. I'm not sure why I didn't just tell him, stop, I'm paying for this. We're doing it my way. But he would read me a line and then I would have to read it back. And I literally, I couldn't even read one line back. Like I couldn't Uh do it. And I was so embarrassed and mortified and then really irritated because I'm like, I paid for this. I'm going to do it my way. And so the video came back and you could just tell where he had to do all this cutting because I was so bad versus if you give me a teleprompter, I'm totally comfortable and I'm great. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's because we're not doing it their way, right? Then we feel like, oh, we're cheating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's to me, it's the difference between like if you have a PC or a Mac computer and somebody yep, gives you the manual that. for a PC and they're like, use these commands. And you're like, I, mm-hmm. those don't work for my system. Well, but that's how you do it. And if you do this other thing, then it's not going to work. Well, okay, but you're on a different system than I am. So on my system, this is how it works. Right. And I wish that people would trust us a little bit more and try it our way first. You know, if if you tried the teleprompter and it wasn't working, then okay, try something else. But if you know what's going to work right. for you, I wish people would believe that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get talked out of it by some pissy little, you know, 23-year-old Stanford, I think he was an MBA. So. Yeah. But also, he I think sure he would be amazing. How to do it. I think you would be amazing on a soap opera. I'm just going to put it out there. Like, I think that I would watch that soap opera so hard. (laughs) Oh, my God. You're so cute. What I want to say, though, too, is, you know, when we talk about ADHD and trauma, I am sorry, but being an actress and struggling with all these things is trauma alone. Like, I can't even imagine, you know, they just you've got to show up at a moment's notice. You're supposed to always look good. They're talking about how you physically look. Your memory like, is bad. I just can't even imagine a worse trauma than that. It was a bad fit um, now in, in retrospect. <laughs> the, one, the one aspect that was a good fit, and I, I think you're, you kind of touched on it with the soap opera star thing and the melodramatic, is we do feel yeah. things so deeply and we can be so present and in the moment and good at connecting with other people that there were some incredible performances sometimes that that people yeah. could get out of me because I could feel so deeply and I and I'm used to being vulnerable and you know and there is something unique about me that I bring to the table but yeah that having to sit still or stand still and memorize your lines and look a certain way and be a certain way it was really interesting because I was getting it from both sides I was getting from society this is what you're supposed to be like. You're supposed to show up on time and, and, you know, be neurotypical, meet these neurotypical standards, be consistent, you know, in the workplace, be consistent, show up on time, uh, be professional, meaning don't have feelings uh, or don't show them. And then on the flip side, it was, okay, but as an actress, you have to look this certain way. You have to be this certain way. You have to fit into this box. So I was trying to cram myself into two boxes that I really, really didn't fit in. And that there was some trauma around that. And I'm, you know, I developed disordered eating because, it, you know, it was, 
I would get yelled at for eating a bagel. And then the stress of having to memorize my lines and having to be a certain weight and having to look a certain way, it was really stressful. And the only thing that I knew to do to cope with my stress was to eat. And so the more, you know, berated I was for these things, the more I would like secretly like binge essentially. And then I would have to diet and go to extreme lengths with my exercise and stuff to try and combat that. And it was really tough. And it took me a long time to undo some of these messages of this is what you're supposed to look like. This is how you're supposed to be in the world and start to figure out who I was on my own, you know, because from a pretty early age, I was taught that who I was and how I was, was wrong, but that I had potential, right? Like I had the potential to be (laughs) what everyone else wanted me to be. And it was this close all the time. And I just couldn't get there. You know, it was, it was really tough. Yeah. And I think that's a big one, right? That unexplained underachievement. And it may be that people from the outside look at you and think, oh my God, she's all together. She's perfect. But it can also be what you're telling yourself in your head that it's just never good enough because of exactly what you said. You never know when that reliable brain is going to show up and when it's yeah. not. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. No, exactly. And the the closest I got to being really successful as an actress, I did get my SAG card. I, I was in the union and I, you know, I you had still top get health agents. insurance from them. I understand that the health insurance being part of that union is amazing. Only if you work, <laughs> if you, if you get enough jobs, it's not just being in the union. You have to work regularly to be able a to certain amount of time. health insurance. Yeah. You have to do a, you know, get a certain amount of jobs, make a certain amount of money every year to, to qualify for the health insurance. Are you and sure? I never- Cause I just heard, I can't remember his name, but one of these, um, news people, and he was saying he was in one thing. He was in West Wing. And now he doesn't take his, you know, MSNBC health insurance because the SAG insurance is so good. Are you sure? Was he a regular on that show? Because then his, no. his residuals might be yeah. high. No? You know who it was? It was Lawrence O'Donnell. I mean, I can, I can look into it. It was, it was that <laughs> way at the time. If, if I should be getting free health insurance and good health insurance, I should look into this. But, you know, in true ADHD fashion, I don't remember the last time I paid my dues because I stopped... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, so many times in my life, I put so much effort and energy into something and then I just didn't keep up with it. So like, I didn't finish my massage school training. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I I, I am in the union, but I haven't paid my dues in I don't know how long. So I don't know if, if I've been kicked out, like, and I'm afraid to look. There's so many, there's so many things where I just put so much effort into something and then kind of abandoned it. So I'll look into that. It's probably because it was the wrong thing versus look at what you've done with how to ADHD, right? It was just everything lined up. And I'm sure all your past experiences kind of helped you get there. It did. And that's what I try to tell people a lot of the time. Like it can feel like a waste of time because you, you know, you try this and then that doesn't work out and you try this and that doesn't work out. But what ends up happening is you end up being this kind of bumblebee, like you go from flower to flower <laughs> pollinating, and then you you come you come back and and it's this really valuable thing. You have all of these different experiences from all of these different ventures that you know failed ventures, right? But but all of those shape what you have to bring to the venture you're currently right. doing. And I think it's so valuable. If I hadn't taken all those acting classes, I wouldn't be as good on camera. I wouldn't know how to cold read. I wouldn't be as good with a teleprompter. <laughs> if I hadn't, you know, if I hadn't waited tables so much, I wouldn't know what it's like to to serve people and to make sure that I can attend to their needs and be really perceptive to, you know, even the things that they're not saying that they need, you know, and I, I love that I have this kind of server or servant mentality when it comes to serving my community. It's not about me. It's what am I bringing to my community and what do yeah. they need? There were so many, so many things that I did 
that helped me, even the massage therapy stuff. Like I am so much more mindful than I used to be because I am very present in my body and I am present with when I'm connecting with other people. All of these things were valuable. So I, I really encourage people to, to recognize, like, if you feel like you wasted your time, I don't think anything is a waste of time, really, because you're developing yeah. skills that you may use in really unexpected and unique ways in the future. I couldn't agree more. So, Jess, you're going to have a baby. Mm. I keep forgetting about that. <laughs> How could you forget? I am so, <laughs> I'm so jealous. It was like my favorite time of my life. So let's say this baby, you don't know if it's a boy or girl, do you? I do. I do know. I haven't, I haven't said publicly. I'm actually announcing it tomorrow. So I can, I can tell you. Yeah. It's a little girl. Okay. So let's say she's just like you. <laughs> what would you do differently? For, for my daughter? Yeah. I would do a lot of the things that my mom did. My mom kind of intuitively did a lot of things like have a, have a launch pad by the door and, you know, uh, have a structured time where you come home, you have a snack, you do homework, you know, th- there was, there was a lot of structure and routine and, and stuff that she kind of provided me intuitively as well as encouraging the different interests, right? You know, if I wanted to play flute, she's like, cool, you know, we'll give you flute lessons. I wanted to play piano and I did that for a little bit. And then I was like, no, this, I, I don't like it. I don't feel like this is my thing. She's like, cool, you're not doing piano lessons anymore. She did a really good job of that. But one thing I would do differently is I would put her in charge of things that she needed to be in charge of when she lived on her own a little bit sooner. My mm. mom was so good about doing so much for us that I <laughs> I went from being at home and in high school and I could really just focus on my my schoolwork and my job and my boyfriend and stuff. And I wasn't really responsible for anything at home. Like every once in a while I'd do chores, but I, you know, she was still doing my laundry. She was cooking for mm. us. She was doing all of these things. And so what happened is when I went to college, and I moved in with my boyfriend, I had no idea how to keep house. I had no idea how to do laundry. I had no idea how to cook for myself. And I really struggled because I was not only having to learn all these things for the first time, but I was also dealing with the double deficit of college where there are more demands on your executive function because of college and there are more social pressures. You know, there's parties to go to and and all these social distractions. And so I was really, really struggling without my mom there to, to help, which is one of the reasons why even as a young adult, she'd have to come over and like clean my house for me. So I think, I think I would probably, you know, as early as possible, put my daughter in charge of what she could handle and even let her fail a little bit because it's better to fail a little bit now than to fail utterly and completely when you're suddenly having to do everything on your own. Anything with interest and your daughter? Tell me more. <laughs> I'm just thinking. So I have two kids. My son is 21. He's a senior at NYU. He's the one who started all this, basically. And he just announced that the kid who hates school, he's signing up for six or seven more years. He wants to get a PhD in psychology. He wow. wants to be a psychologist, which finally makes sense because he was talking banker before, you know, he was really interested in IB. And I'm I'm so excited because the things that he talks about wanting to study are actually things like he wants to figure out, like, how does a dyslexic brain learn how to read? You know, and mm-hmm. when we want to figure out things for ourselves, I think our best purposes give meaning to our past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my question was, as far as do you think if you had had more help cultivating interest early on, 
would that have been helpful? Or now that you've been through it all, are you kind of like, well, I'm glad I went through every single one of those experiences. You know, I'm I'm still really grateful that my mom let me try things. And then when I was done, I was done. What I do wish that I'd had is maybe a little bit more of a conversation when I was like, and now I'm quitting for her to be like, okay, what's the issue here? Because I think sometimes it was that I wasn't making enough progress. And sometimes there were ADHD challenges getting in the way, right? So there are things that I wish that I had stuck with. I wish that I'd stuck with learning to play the piano. My reasoning for stopping playing the piano was not a good one. It was, well, my hands are small. I'm never going to be that good at this. So I don't want to waste my parents' money on lessons. And I wish that my mom had had a little bit of a conversation of like, and you're not a you good daughter. That? You weren't a good daughter at all. <laughs> you were always thinking about your parents first. <laughs> That's so funny. Thank you. This is actually the first conversation. I feel like I owe you therapy uh, money after this because <laughs> this is the first conversation I've had where I actually do feel like, man, okay. In, in a lot of ways, I was a good daughter. Dang. You're all right. Daughter. Maybe I could give myself some credit for that. But yeah, I wish that she had she had sat down with me and said, okay. You know, I, I love that she respected that I was done, but I wish that she had maybe asked a little bit why, mm-hmm. you know, because if I had told her, well, because my hands are small, I was, I was in third grade at the time. Okay. Like, of course my hands were small, but I was like, because my hands were small and I didn't want to ha- waste my parents' money. Okay, on Jess, something can I just stop at. you? I took piano lessons for, I was terrible at it. I wouldn't cut my fingernails was the problem. Um, <laughs> so I was probably 13 when I stopped piano. The whole family played all the string instruments. You know, I had tiger mom, tiger dad. Got up at six in the morning, had to practice for an hour, no credit. If you didn't practice, you weren't allowed to go play or do fun stuff. So we got up at six in the morning and practiced. So I was 13 when I stopped. Never once did I even realize that if you have big hands, like, you know, concert pianists tend to have big hands, but you were like, how old? And you already knew that, oh, hand size is important (laughs) for, you were probably Googling. Uh, Google was not a thing yet, but I, you know, how did you know that? I have no idea. I I may have just watched, you know, what my piano teacher could do. And I noticed that their hands were bigger than my hands. And I realized like I couldn't stretch the same. I don't know, but I just, I knew that I knew that I wasn't going to be good. And I think, you know, part of it was that I I had small hands, but a part of it was I had trouble practicing. Practicing was boring. It was so boring. Oh my God. It's so boring. So I didn't want to waste my parents' money. But I wish that she had asked me about that because at the time, I think we're, we were okay. I think I was worried about things that I didn't have to actually worry about. Yeah. And something that I would tell my daughter now is if it's something you enjoy doing, you don't have to be great at it. You can just do something so that when you're an adult, you have hobbies that you love doing and you don't have to make money off of them. You don't have to be amazing. You don't have to be the best in the world at something for it to be valuable to you for it to be worth doing for you. And I think that's something that I always struggled with is doing things for me. It always had to have a purpose, you know? And and part of that is the gifted kid mentality of like, oh, well, if you can't be the best at the spelling bee, yeah. don't sign up, right? Like you yeah. have to be the best. You have to you have to achieve, you have to win, you have to be productive. You have to, you know, it's all for other people. I need to impress other people. I need to prove myself to other people. And now at, you know, 41 years old, I'm learning, oh, there can be things that are just for you. Like there can be things that you love doing. Tennis was one of them for me. I'm never going to be amazing at tennis, but I have so much fun just hitting the ball around. (laughs) And I can just show up and enjoy doing that without having to worry about being good at it. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to say you are embarking on what I hope will be the funnest part of your life. And if it's not, it's because you're trying 
too hard. Just have fun. <laughs> you know, ultimately, all kids need our parents who love them, right? You, They walk into the room and you light up because they're there and all the other stuff doesn't matter. So I'm so envious. I would love to go back there. And of course, my brain, my memory is so bad that I can't remember. Like, you know, yeah. I literally, people say, oh, cherish every day because it goes by so fast. No, really do that because it sounds like your brain and my brain work in a similar manner. It does. Literally, yeah. you will wake up one day and they're gone and you're, wait, how was that 18 years? Like it just goes by so fast Aww. and you don't remember all the little things in between. Right. And then when I go to the photo albums, it doesn't make me happy. I get sad because it was so much fun. And I don't Aww. think I'm ever going to be able to recreate that. You know, dogs are just not the same. They're not. But anytime you want to visit, I'm probably <laughs> going to need help. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I just love I love babies. And I don't know that I'm going to have any grandkids for a long time. So that's not going to happen either. So I will. I know people just think that woman's scary. Get her away from my kid. But I'll go see a kid and I'll be like, can I hold her? And they're like, I don't even know you. That's really sweet. But that makes me feel so much better because it's one of the things that I'm anxious about is I have trouble managing my own life. So what happens when you have a kid and you know how much more anxiety inducing is that, that now you're not only responsible for your own executive function, but for a child, you know, it's a little scary. And I, the role model that I had, my mom didn't have ADHD. My mom was neurotypical. And so I'm holding myself to this standard that I can't probably reasonably reach. Right. And I have to accept that, that I'm going to, I'm going to bring different things to my child's life than my mom was able to bring to mine. But it's really nice to, to hear from somebody who's been there that it was a wonderful time for you. So it's all about positive emotion. And, you know, you may be a sandbox mom, actually, when I think about you and, you know, what I've read about you in your book, I was not. What's a sandbox mom? You know, the kind of mom who will literally just sit in the sandbox. And, oh, and yeah, no, I'm totally a sandbox kids. mom. I will totally sit in the, you know why? Because part of it, part of it is like, I miss being a kid. <laughs> it was so yeah. fun. It was so fun. Yeah. I want to, I want to like, I want to revisit my own childhood. That sounds amazing. And I'm going to be teaching my kid about emotions and I'm going to be like, oh, right. Yeah, we should pay attention to our emotions. I feel like I'm yeah. going to kind of like re-go through my own childhood. Yes. With my child. and, and that's exactly what happens. And it sounds like you had such a lovely relationship with your own mother that, you'll do the same thing with your daughter. I am absolutely certain of it. Just don't beat yourself up for those things that you don't do well. I mean, as I was starting to say, all my friends were stay-at-home moms. Oh. I couldn't possibly just stay home. It just, and, and you know, no dissing anybody who does. You need to do what works for you, but that was just not me. And so I would kind of flit in and flit out and I guess I was supposed to feel guilty because, you know, women, this is women's work and we're supposed to be doing it. But I just realized that, you know, as long as my kids were happy and as long as they knew how much I cared about them, all the other stuff didn't matter. And so, I mean, there were times when, Jess, I would literally, um, a friend of mine was going through a really bad divorce. I mean, so bad that her her ex had, I mean, family had a divorce attorney. He had a divorce attorney. Like I'm, like I'm saying it so low, like then nobody will hear, right? <laughs> As um, you're about to put it out to so millions of people. <laughs> yeah. And so 
what she ended up doing was she called me. She was in, you know, this divorce proceeding with all the lawyers there. And, you know, they were trying to prove that she was an unfit mother. And she said to me, could you go pick up my kids? Because my boy, my son and her boys were really good friends. And I'm like, yes. So it was an hour and I'm doing my work, you know, before I had to pick her up, it was an hour. And I get into the car and I pull up to the line and I see her boys and I think, oh my God. And they're with Marcus, my son. Oh my gosh. I love those boys. They're such great boys. Marcus gets in the car. They didn't know they were supposed to come with me. I wave at them and I drive away. Like there are so many times, and I know, and you can imagine then, you know, you know, the divorce lawyers got involved and this was another indicator of what a bad mother she is. The kids are there. You know, it was just ah, stuff like that. And I would forget to pick, I would forget I have kids sometimes. I forget I'm pregnant sometimes. Like I do. So I, you know, and that's, that's one of my greatest fears. Like I'm going to forget about the kid. Like I'm going to, no. but you know what? There are so many, there's so many strategies that you can use now. The car that we got, and this is intentional. The car that we got <laughs> will remind you, like when you park, yes, if you have opened the, the back, only scary it, thing. it will remind you, it will remind you that there is a child in the back. Or it, will, it will say, Hey, don't forget to check the back seats. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, thank goodness. And right now it's just a purse that I left back there. But like when it's a child, it I'm going to be real grateful for, <laughs> for that Does reminder. Does it even tell you about the purse? Um, yeah, it tells you any anytime you open up the back door and put something in the back seat when you park, like you'll drive, you know, for 45 minutes or whatever, and then you park and it says to check the back seats. It reminds you to check the back seats. Wow. Because it wow. knows that you've put something back there. And so I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love this car so much. I'm I'm so glad that there's so much more technology that is supportive of these challenges because yeah, it's it sounds like we do have this in common. Working memory is just rough. Terrible. Um, and when well, you get I read those stories of oh, I know. people who leave their kids in the back of the car and everybody's just pounding on them because they don't understand. Those people right. likely have ADHD, right? You don't just forget your kid. Yeah. So uh, no, they have ADHD, they're they're hyper focused on something, or they're going yeah. through their normal routine and they don't usually have their kid with them when they go to the grocery store. So this is something time emotional forget. going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know all the times, like all these horror stories, like what a horrible mother this person was. And I'm just like, oh God, they probably just have ADHD. I know. And like, it's just rough. You know, this, this way that we assign things as a moral failing that are really just cognitive struggles. It's, it's a little bit heartbreaking and it's a little bit scary, right? Because, you know, women, this is another box, right? Like I, I have dodged the boxes now, like the neurotypical box and then the, you know, actress having to be a certain way, certain size, shape, you know, everything box. I've been able to create my own box, but now that I'm becoming a mom, that's another box that, that I could easily fail to fit into. And so I'm really working hard to define what it means to me to be a mom and what success looks like to me and to be able to advocate for that and say, you know, that's great that that's the way that you do it. This is how I do it. You know, these are my values because if we don't define our own values, then you know, it's just superimposed on us what the what right. what society's values are, what it looks like. And I have a, a mom friend of mine who said the most amazing thing. She was like, "There is so much baking expected of you when you're a mom. For some reason, like you know, bake you sales. Do not like it, to bake. Um, I I actually do like to bake, but I like the concept um, of what she's <laughs> saying. She's like, she's like, I just told people I don't bake. I'm happy to bring plates and forks and spoons." to every party, but yeah. I'm not going to bake. And she would just, she was like, that is my boundary, right? I'm not going to bake. You, you can expect this. So for me, I'm actually super excited to be like, sorry, I can't work today. I'm going to bake a cake for my kids. Class. Like <laughs> I'm 
super happy to do that because I like baking. I, cause I like cooking from instructions, from recipes and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's nice to know that if there is something that's like, this isn't who I am, this isn't in line with my values or my strengths, I can just be like, yeah, right. that's not, you know, that's not something I have to offer. That's not, that's not this model. <laughs> I think you want that model over there. Um, yeah. We're not all the same and just that's fine. Other neurotypical moms. I really think, you know, that that's the key or not neurotypical, not neurotypical moms. Yeah. Well, you want neurotypical moms because they can shore it up. Right. But mm-hmm. then you want neurodiverse moms like as part of the friend group. So you realize yeah. that, hey, there's so many different ways to skin this cat. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, my biggest goal was always that I want my kids to be proud that I'm their mom. Aww. And that might mean different things to everyone, you know, but that was really what was important to me that they were, you know, that, and it's kind of like what you said about, I mean, yes, you are a wonderful daughter. You always come, you know, even when it's like, oh, well, I'd like this thing to be different, but my mom did all these great things. Like you're always, you're so loyal and kind to your mom as you should be, because it sounds like she was a fantastic mom. Okay, Jess, we need to wrap up. Wonderful. Tell us about your book and anything you want people to know about it. Yeah. So I, I wrote this book. It's called How to ADHD, An Insider's Guide to Working with Your Brain, Not Against It. And it is <laughs> quite literally everything important that I learned on my seven-year journey to learn to work with my brain, not against it. And when I started, I knew nothing. I knew basically that you know I had trouble paying attention and these meds helped me focus and everything else was my fault. And I was a horrible human <laughs> who just needed to try harder, who had all this potential that she wasn't reaching because of moral failings. I don't know. I was not in a great place when I started. And I was really disempowered because on the days when I couldn't get my meds, which, you know, we all know there's a stimulant shortage right now, I have no other tools and I felt useless. Right. And so I went from being really disempowered, feeling like terrible about myself to learning all these tools, learning the language for what I struggled with, learning what I could do about it, all these strategies and everything to coming to a place of real self acceptance and also an understanding that, you know, that a lot of my struggles were because I lived in a world that didn't really understand or accommodate for these challenges. And so it wasn't just me that needed to try harder. I needed the world to do a little bit better too. And then in the end, I have this toolbox full of strategies. I have a strong sense of self. I I like who I am. I like the life that I'm living and that I'm building. And it was such a powerful transformation. I wanted to put everything that I learned that helped me get there into one book. And so that is this book. It's, It's how to motivate your brain, how to sleep, how to feel how to, you know, dealing with our emotions. We have these big emotions that we often try and stuff down. And that turns out not to be the way to handle it. It apparently, um, how to people, (laughs) how to make friends, like all of these things that I learned are in this book and not only the strategies that I learned, but I include quotes from the community about how they use these different strategies or what they do. That's really unique. And so it's such an important book. It's one that I wish that I had had. And it's one that that I'm glad to have myself as a resource. There are a lot of parts of this book that I used to help me get through writing this book. Um, and I, I personally revisit this stuff because we can learn all of this stuff, but, but remembering it, you know, retaining it and then being able to access it when we need to is really tough. And so now anytime I'm like struggling with sleep, I can go back to that sleep chapter and be like, right, what am I doing? Like, what are my options here? Um, and it's, I, I think it's a really important, powerful resource. There's also, pre-order gifts right now. So if you go to howtoadhdbook.com, you can find where to pre-order the book as well as 
if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a, a form for pre-order gifts. So you can actually get the entire chapter on motivation already, even before the book comes out. So give us the URL again. The URL is howtoadhdbook.com. Well, that makes sense. Jessica, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. It was lovely to get to know you. It was amazing. We have to catch up and have coffee and you have to come meet the baby when the baby's here. Yeah. So you're in LA. I'm in Seattle now. Oh, you're in Seattle. Okay. Well, we're on the same coast. Okay. We're going to take you out of here. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Jessica, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you here next week. And don't forget to go order my book at ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book and then go order Jessica's too. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Join us at ADHDforsmartwomen.com, where you can find more information on my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, and my patented Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system to help you get unstuck and fall in love with your brilliant brain.